Good morning again. This does not get any less weird the more that we do it, so I'm glad to see you. Uh, welcome everybody to Jericho Road Church uh, online, wherever you are throughout this planet. We're going to begin by doing a little bit of shout outs like we love to do. What do we do? Love God and love others. What do we say? I love God and I love you. I hope that is true in your actual life. I hope that you guys are, are taking time to love God uh, by spending time with him and uh, love others by just reaching out, touching and blessing someone. If you could uh, maybe this week uh, thank one of the praise team members, just maybe text them uh, throughout the week and just thank them for their service. Uh, there's a tech team in the back, uh, Isaiah, uh, Pastor Jason and Ethan are in the back if you want to text them. And I don't know if you knew this because you can never see him on video, but Peter Chang's been drumming every week, and uh, the, somehow there are no angles that ever pick him up, and uh, that, that's not on purpose. He's actually, you know, the best-looking one up around here, but, but uh, we, you, we don't want anyone to get jealous by keep show, highlighting him, so we keep him off camera right there. So uh, text him and thank him. Just thank those people that are serving uh, each week, uh, our pastor staff who's down here. Uh, we're so glad to be able to serve, but uh, I'm so thankful that each of them are are stepping out in faith and, and blessing you all, and so, so cool. We're in the middle of our series, Simply Jesus. We're, we're getting uh, towards about halfway here almost, and, and uh, today's message is called Amaze. Last week, I asked you to sit in the idea of thinking about uh, who is this, this Jesus who's doing all sorts of things, and really, uh, our conclusion to that thought probably is going to come today. This person is the God of the universe who is amazing. We're going to check this out. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6 if you'd like to join us. Otherwise, you can read it right here. Did that work out, Ethan? Yeah, all right. Okay, we were practicing that if I'm pointing right at the verses online. Now, in person, it looks really weird that I'm doing this. But online, I think it looks good, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So right here, Mark chapter 6. Jesus left where he had been last week, and he went to his hometown. And he was accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and uh, many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles that he's performing? Hey, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, like the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Hey, aren't his sisters here with us? And then they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He couldn't do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. So he shows up at his hometown, and, and the hometown people, they're, they're kind of amazed at first about his teaching. Uh, but then they begin to doubt. They start to say, like, how could he have become so powerful in word and, and in deeds? Like, he left Nazareth a carpenter, and then he comes back like a rabbi, and he's got like a disciples and stuff. Like, did he even have time to go to rabbi school? Like, how, who is this? Like, this kind of person isn't. Uh, so I can imagine how hard it is for the people of Nazareth to see Jesus and to say, like, yeah, we knew him when he was a kid. We knew his parents. We know his sisters. Now, who is this with all this kind of new teaching? Like, we know him. Isn't this just the carpenter? And when they say carpenter, we think of like a woodworker, but a carpenter in this time, it's probably better to think of it as a builder because in uh, Israel, there's not a lot of wood. So carpenters uh, not only work with wood occasionally, but more likely they work with stone. 
Uh, almost all of the houses are built out of stone. And that's because in Israel, uh, there's lots of stones. That's why they stone people to death versus like uh, other, other uh, punishments. Um, and so anyway, uh, yeah, he's a carpenter. And then they say, uh, one of the remarks about him, they say, isn't this Mary's son? And this, for us, we kind of just read that and it feels normal a little bit. But in this time, you would never refer to someone as Mary's son. It would always be, hey, that's Joseph's son, if you were attempting to talk about them normally. And so when they insert his mom's name, it's almost probably uh, being used disparagingly. It's to cast doubt on his legitimacy, because if you think back, these people would have all known, because small town, ancient times, people don't move a lot. They would have known about Mary. Remember, Mary's a virgin, and then she gets pregnant, and then she's trying to tell everyone, I got pregnant being a virgin. And they're like, yeah, right, you did. God came on you, right? Uh, no one would have believed that, or many people wouldn't have believed it. And so even here we see that they're like, hey, isn't this like Mary's kid? How is he trying to teach us? How is he trying to be all rabbi-like? And, and how can he do these miraculous things? They're just really confused by this. And uh, so at the end here, uh, we see that that confusion actually causes them enough trouble so that they don't have faith. They, they don't think that he's real. So faith isn't like something nebulous or cloudy. Faith is like believing that's not, that Jesus is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. And they don't. They're looking at him and they're like, isn't this just the carpenter? We know him as this Jesus uh, carpenter, son of these persons, questionable upbringing or questionable past maybe. And so because of this, the miracles that we see all over the other places aren't being done in his hometown. Now we don't know why exactly, but we know that our faith matters in terms of the working of God. And we see it really clearly here. Now, I don't know how exactly that is, but I know that it is. I know that we need to exercise faith in order to see the miraculous happen, in order for God to be unleashed on things. And, and I don't know why God would limit himself to the necessity of our faith. I, I can't answer that question. I could speculate or guess or why this might be, but I don't know the answer. But I do know that it is absolutely true that we have a role to play in the supernatural. And so I would say that we need to be careful not to become so comfortable with Jesus that we forget how amazing that he is. That we don't become just like the townspeople. Oh yeah, he was a carpenter, he was this, he was this, he was this. No, he was so much more. And I worry for us because I think that we need to be careful to make our default setting a setting of faith rather than a setting of doubt. If you grew up in the American school system, your, your, set, your default setting is almost naturalism. If you see something that looks miraculous, you say there's probably a good scientific reason for it to have happened. Our default setting probably should get reset to a setting of faith. Faith rather than doubt when navigating with Jesus and his work in our lives and the lives of other people. So maybe one time you're about to share your faith. And you're going to tell someone about Jesus and you start to get those butterflies in your stomach and you're like, oh no, oh no, they're probably not even going to say yes. I, I doubt if they would even. Well, what is that demonstrating? <laughs> that is an expectation of failure, not an expectation of faith. You're not expecting something miraculous to happen in their life and that God would touch them and change them right now. You're expecting that they're going to reject you. Charles Spurgeon, a famous pastor, had a conversation with another young pastor, and that conversation went something like this. The young pastor came up to Charles Spurgeon, and he said, hey, Charles, uh, Pastor Charles Spurgeon, or maybe Reverend, or I don't know what he called him, but he said, Pastor Charles Spurgeon, 
Why is it that so many people come to Christ when you preach, but when I preach, not that many people come to Christ, maybe, maybe even nobody? And Charles Spurgeon looks at the guy and says, what? You don't expect people to come to Christ every time you preach, do you? And he says, of course not. No, 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 of course not. And Charles Spurgeon says, that's the problem. You don't expect they will, but I do. You see, I think that's true not just for preaching. We need to go into our workplaces expecting a supernatural miracle, expecting a blessing for our coworkers that will come through us, expecting that God has something planned for our day. Like we've said before, and even that new song says, if I'm not dead, then you're not done, God. So maybe all you need to hear today is that you need to reset, go into your menu of, of your personal life, and you need to make your default setting a setting of faith rather a setting of doubt. Change that setting to be faith rather than uncertainty or I don't know. So let's go into every encounter, every sickness even, every difficulty with faith rather than fear, with faith over doubt, with expectation that we will be amazed at the work of God rather than expectation of doom. Our passage continues on here. Then Jesus, he went around teaching from different village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over impure spirits. And these were his instructions. Take nothing for your journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, uh, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but don't take an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any, any place they won't welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they preached that people should repent. And they drove out many demons and they anointed many sick people with oil and they, and they were healed and they healed them. So part of the blessing of being a follower of Jesus is this expectation that he will send you out and that your journey will be amazing as you participate and partner in the work of God to share and to preach and to care about those people who are hurting and lost. Here Jesus sends out the 12 to do the work that he's doing, to preach, to heal, and to cast out demons. He tells them travel with limited supplies so that you won't be tempted to uh, rely on your own resources, rather that you'll rely on the resources of God. They would have to trust him for everything. And this reminds, us, uh, reminds me a little bit of us, that maybe in our lives, when God sends out us out, or he's trying to send us out, maybe we plan too much. Maybe we worry too much when going about spiritual things. Maybe, maybe being open to the Holy Spirit and dependent on God is a better path. Now, I'm not saying don't prepare, uh, like heavens no, but don't get stuck in the plan and prepare loop. I'm, I'm, I'm still preparing. I'm still planning. Yep, I'm going to share Jesus with someone, but, but I just got to get ready. I got to prepare. I got to plan. And then tomorrow I got to plan and I got to prepare and then I got to plan and prepare and I'm in this loop. When the apostles did go out, they didn't create a message. They brought a message. See, you don't even need a message. You don't got to prepare anything. You just got to go out and say, like, here is what God did for me. It is your job to just share, not to change people's mind. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That's why he says to them, if you go and you share the message and they reject it, it's okay to just leave. And you walk away and you, and you dust your shoulder off on them and just say, like, that's on them. 
God doesn't ask you to convince anyone of the gospel. He doesn't ask you to change anyone's heart. Otherwise, you'd be dipping into the, in the realm of the Holy Spirit. You're not the Holy Spirit. All he says is just go tell somebody. But I got a plan and prepare. Just don't plan and prepare. Just go tell somebody. For God's sake, this week, don't plan or prepare, you guys. Stop planning and prayer and just go tell somebody. Like, would you just, each person in our church says, I'm just going to go tell somebody. Uh, it's the barista, it's the drive through person. I don't know. I'm going to tell them, like, I'm going get, to get up on there and I'm going to say, Hey, Jesus loves you. He died for you. Uh, he wants you to go to heaven. I don't know. But enough planning and praying, perhaps it is time to actually go do what Jesus says to do. Check out the last sentence right here. It says, they went out. So they actually did it. He tells them to do something, and then they follow through and they do it. See, one of my biggest concerns with us as a church is that sometimes we sit and we learn and we hear God's word to us, and then we don't do it. Like, we can hear God's word to us all day long, but it don't matter if we don't do it. Maybe just 30 seconds ago, you heard me say that you should tell someone this week about Jesus, and you know that the Word of God says that you should tell someone about Jesus. Your pastor said you should tell someone about Jesus. Your conscience tells you you should say something about Jesus. The Holy Spirit tells you to say something about Jesus. Then what? The disciples went out and did it. We need to go out and do it. Now, I'm not pointing fingers here because, because I'm included. I need to not just say and learn, but I've got to go out and do it. Together, we must all move when God says move. Continuing in our passage, King Herod heard about what was going on with this Jesus stuff and his name it was becoming well-known. Because some people, they were saying like John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers were at work in him. Other people said he's Elijah, and still others claimed he was a prophet, one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he was like, John? Like, how could it be John? I beheaded that guy. Uh, has he been raised from the dead? And then Mark gives us, like, an explanation of why, why Herod said that in this next passage. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had had him bound and put in prison. Like, he did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife who he uh, had married. For John had been saying to Herod, like, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias, she nursed a grudge against John. She wanted to kill him. But she wasn't able to because Herod feared John and he protected him a bit, and knowing him to be a righteous and a holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, this opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a great banquet for the high officials and military commanders and the leading men of the Galilee. And the daughter of Herodias came in and she danced. And uh, she wasn't just, you know, doing her recital. She was dancing. <laughs> if you have kids at home, she was just dancing. Uh, and uh, they pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king says to that girl, hey, what do you want? Ask for me anything you want and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And she goes out and asks her mom, like, what, what should I ask for? Right away, mom says, boom, ask for the head of John the Baptist, she answered. <laughs> That's a messed up answer. Like, go get me someone's head. And so 
at once the girl hurried to the king with this request. She said, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Like, that's really gross. And the king was, like, distressed by this. But because of his oath and the dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with the orders. Oh, earmuffs for the kids, sorry. Uh, he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And the man went, beheaded John in the prison, and he brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to the mother. And on hearing this, John's disciples came and took the body and, and laid it in the tomb. Man, that's just that's nuts. So here's John preaching repentance, and John didn't hold back even to the, the guy in charge. He told Herod, hey, Herod, you're doing something that isn't allowed. You've got your brother's wife, and you're uh, marrying her. That's not okay. And so John didn't mind calling out the small and the tall. And for his speaking of God's word, he gets imprisoned. Now, we, see, we know Herod is... Herod knows he's doing something wrong. He's distressed by the request. He knows that John is, is the, uh, a righteous man, and yet he still does this evil thing. Now, this is some really messed up family dynamics. It's like real housewives of Israel or Galilee or wherever they are. I'm look at this, and, and I'll tell you full disclosure, I struggle with this kind of idea, especially with John the Baptist, because Jesus calls, in another passage, John the Baptist the greatest person who ever lived outside of Jesus. Like, so he's got high praise from, from Jesus. And so I struggle with why God allows this. And, and maybe some of you guys struggle with why God allows certain things too. Why does God allow this? Here, John the Baptist gets executed, but for doing the right thing. Like God told him to tell people to repent. He tells people to repent. He doesn't hold back to this King Herod. King Herod imprisons him and ultimately executes him for doing what God told him to do. And I don't know why. And, and I get frustrated a little. Like God could have delivered him from prison, but he didn't. And I don't have an answer as to why not. We could guess or speculate or, or make some conjectures, but we don't know why God didn't deliver him. But for me, God has demonstrated to me in my life that he's amazing. He's demonstrated that he has a plan and a purpose for this earth. And so even when I don't understand why, I'm willing to say, God, I'm just going to trust you on this, even if I can't figure it out. Besides, I think ultimately John the Baptist is in heaven, so that's an upgrade. Sometimes I get life obsessed. I think like, wow, how could he get killed for this? And God's like, who cares? He's in heaven. Well, okay, maybe, you know, who, who knows why. Then we jump back into our passage with Jesus here. So there was that, that, that side note, which uh, Mark tells us about this John the Baptist thing. Now back to our passage about Jesus. The apostles gathered around Jesus, and they reported to him all they had done and taught, because uh, he sent them out, remember? Then, because so many people were coming and going uh, that they didn't even have a chance to eat, this is the second time we heard that, he says to them, come with me by yourselves, to a quiet place, and, and let's get some rest. Like Jesus knew when it was time to work. He sent him out to work. But he also knew when it was time to rest. When the disciples come back from this stressful time, a successful time, but, but a busy time of, of ministry and working and, and, and caring for people, he knew that they needed a time of rest. Jesus knew that in order to work well, people need to rest well. And I would say that it's true for each of you as well. In my last three or four years here at Jericho Road, I have seen an incredible work ethic from our people. 
Our church knows how to work hard, and you work incredibly hard. So I want to encourage you also to take times of rest, to find a time where you are just not doing anything. You're just resting and being with the Lord, catching your breath, ah, doing one of these. It doesn't have to be weeks and weeks and weeks long. It can just be a few moments in your day. It can be a couple of hours throughout where you just find some time to rest. Life is about having a healthy balance. And so here they, they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving, they recognized them. And they ran on foot from all the towns and they got there ahead of them. So they're in a boat crossing the lake and they're like, no, let's get over there fast. So they're trying to run. And they actually arrived before the boats arrived. When Jesus landed, he sees this large crowd. He has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Like Jesus knew that, that without a shepherd, sheep would get, uh, they'd be in a lot of trouble. They can get lost really easy. Like sheep are so dumb, they can't even find their own food and water sometimes. Like they really are dumb. And so Jesus like sheep. He's like, man, these people are so messed up. They need a lot of help. They need an intervention. And so he helps them with their greatest need. What does he do for them? He teaches them. The greatest need in their lost lives is the need to have the word of God, and he gives it to them as a faithful shepherd. Now, by this time, it was late in the day, so the disciples come to him, and they go, this is a remote place, they say, and it's already really late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and the villages, and they could buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said, that would take like more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. They found out and they said, we got five, two fish. Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking to heaven. He gives thanks, breaks the loaves, and he gives them to the disciples to distribute among the people. And he's also dividing the two fish among them. And they all ate, all of them, and they were satisfied, so they ate to their fill. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. So Jesus, it's really interesting that both Jesus and the disciples see the same need. They both recognize that people need to eat something. And the disciples' solution was to get rid of the need by getting rid of the needy. And Jesus has something else in mind. He plans to feed the people. And so he says, feed them. They said, you want us to spend 20 grand on one meal as if we could find that much food right now. What are you talking about? Now, clearly they thought spending that kind of money on the crowd was either ridiculous or it wasn't possible or maybe it was a waste. But Jesus had a different solution than spending money. He had a miracle in mind, and he promptly uh, multiplies the, the fish and the loaves, providing for the people with this miracle. Like he literally creates something out of nothing. Again, demonstrating his authority and his power over the natural physical realm. I mean, this is some pretty amazing stuff. So the assurance that Jesus can provide, even miraculously, even in the mundane, for all of our needs, that idea should be really precious to us. It was to the earliest Christians. On the walls of the catacombs and the other like uh, early Christian places where Christians were hiding out or, or where Christians were living, that we will often find uh, paintings or scratchings or etchings 
of loaves and fish. Because the early Christians recognized that this miracle was really important. Because of this extraordinary miracle, which addressed an ordinary uh, problem, like a real-life problem, they recognized, man, Jesus not only does the big, high miracle stuff, but he just provided dinner for people in a miraculous way. So after this, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he goes up on the mountainside to pray. And later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on the land. And he saw the disciples from up on the mountain that he's standing. Uh, He sees the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out, ah, because they all saw him and they were terrified. So immediately he spoke to them and he said, whoa, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Climbs into the boat with them, the wind dies down, and they were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the lows, their hearts were hardened. So as Jesus is praying up here in the heights of the mountains, uh, above the Sea of Galilee, it's around 3 a.m., and he finished up his prayer time, he looks out, he, he sees the disciples straining to row across the lake, and uh, unknown to them, Jesus sees them, he knows their issue, he, and he cares about it. So, so he goes ahead and walks down, he's going to go walk by them, now he happens to be walking on water, it's Jesus, whatever, right? Uh, and, and he's going to go check on them. So he checks on them, he sees that they're fine, and he's actually just going to pass by, he's going to walk on by. Uh, he only comes over to them after they freak out and they start screaming like sissies, so he walks over there and he takes care of the situation. Now we know from the other Gospels but that, that this is the point uh, where Peter actually gets out of the boat and walks on water for Jesus, and then he sinks after he has a lack of faith, right? We, we remember that part of the Bible? Well, uh, if Peter is the main source of the book of Mark, and we think that he is, then it's kind of interesting that Peter didn't relay this part of the narrative to Mark, so Mark doesn't include it. Now, I wonder why. It's either because Peter is like really humble, and he's like, man, I don't want people to know how much faith I had, and I stepped out on the water. Or like he's a little uh, uh, insecure because he doesn't want people to know about his lack of faith, which caused him to sink. Well, I don't know why, but but uh, as Peter is the main source, I wonder if it's maybe one of those two reasons. He's like, yeah, don't mention the water part. Don't mention the sinking down part. When they crossed over, they landed at, at Gennesaret, and they anchored there. As soon as they get out of the boat, people recognize Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region. They carried in the sick on mats to wherever uh, they heard he was. Wherever he went, to villages, towns, or countrysides, they placed the sick on the market, uh, in the marketplaces, and they begged him to just let them touch even the edge of his cloak. Remember the lady who did that? Well, this has become a thing now. And all who touched it were healed. So with this description of the healing ministry of Jesus, we continue to see the amazing power of Jesus over the laws of nature, over the laws of sickness, over the spirits, over things all physical. Now, normally, 5,000 people are not fed with one small lunch. Normally, men don't walk on water. Normally, the sick are not instantly healed. And none of this is normal. It's all amazing. And quite simply, it's impossible, except from the power of God. Look, we have an opportunity to live for God in such a way that our, that our lives, too, are amazing. We have the opportunity to participate in the supernatural, to join in bringing the message of Jesus. He's calling us, just like he did to the disciples, to go out and preach. 
You know, some of the best sermons that are ever preached are not preached in a church on Sundays. They're preached in a, when a, a follower of Jesus shares one-on-one what God has done in their life with someone else. That's the most powerful preaching. I think Jesus invites you into that amazing kind of life. Now we've heard. Are we going to do it? Or are we going to prepare some more? We each get to decide. Would you join me in praying and then we're going to worship? Father, man, I, I want to decide yes. God, for me, I want, to, I want to switch the default in my heart to be faith. Father, I want to switch the default in my heart to preach. And not just on a Sunday morning preach, because that's my job. But I want to switch the default to preach a daily share your goodness with everyone I meet. Maybe there'll be someone who needs a meal today and I get to buy it for them. Maybe someone who's homeless. Maybe maybe there's a a drive-in worker who needs me to encourage them with a word. And I want to faithfully preach and have faith that you're going to do something powerful and miraculous. I want to join you in the amazing. Church, I want to invite you to pray that same thing. And I'll just print it for me because that's where I want to be first. But I, I want it for each of you too. So would you just pray that? God, would you use me that I could see the amazing?